through 15, I'd invite you to stand as we honor God in the reading of his word as you follow along in this next section of the letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 1 beginning in verse 8. The Apostle Paul writes, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers making request, if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. Verse 13. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So into the reading of God's word, may we be blessed as we study it together in the name of Stephen. For the Apostle Paul, in what ought to be true for every leadership team of a church, and what ought to be true for every Bible-believing congregation, is that the gospel is the heart and the very core of our faith. Paul was convinced that a proper understanding of the fundamental truths or the doctrines as presented in scriptures are essential. They need to be known so that we might have assurance of salvation as promised to all believers. And so immediately after introducing himself to the believers at Rome in verse 1, Paul next offered up a summary statement of the gospel. That's what we have been looking at most recently. He reminded his readers that the gospel was ancient in its conception in verse 2 that it focused on the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is truly man and truly God in verses 3 and 4. And it gave its recipients both a new position in the family of God, graciously saving them, but in addition to that, it gives them a new occupation. That occupation is to be the gospel, consumed by the gospel, desirous of proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ to others to bring about, as Paul says, the obedience uh, uh, to faith in the life of believers. And that it assured then, that it assures us as children of God that we have both the grace to obey what God has commanded as well as peace with God, that we need not fear him for our sins have been satisfied, taken care of in Christ. Well, having explained his understanding of the basics of the content of the gospel, Paul now turns his attention to his desire, and he has a desire to go and visit Rome. We have some folks that visited Rome not too long ago. I'm sure that was your desire. But Paul's desire was to go to these folks in Rome and continue to proclaim to them the fullness of the gospel. He wanted, as his hope, to not only be a benefit to them, But by gathering with other believers, he expected to be benefited as well. And so in doing this, Paul reveals to his readers what makes him tick. What do we mean by what makes a person tick? This is what influences and informs and motivates Paul's passion for Christ and for the gospel of God. Have you ever stopped to wonder what makes a person tick? We probably think about it with other people, right? And what is it that makes Brett tick? What goes on in his mind? What are the influences and and the motivations for a person to be the way he or she is? We might ask it this way. Why do you get up in the morning? Now, that's a loaded question. I've been contemplating that all morning. Why do you get up in the morning? Well, because the alarm goes off. 
because the cat gets in my face, because I'm hungry, because, well, I have a job. I got to go to a job. Well, the kids are going to get up, or maybe the kids are already up. And we can come up with a list of a of hundred different things, a hundred different reasons why we're motivated to get up. And even with some of that, we might come to the conclusion, I don't want to get up. Those days, my wife sometimes will wake up. I'll bring her a cup of coffee, and she might say something like, I don't want to go to bed. And we all recognize that. But may I suggest to you that we need to make sure that our thinking is correct, because for the Apostle Paul, what motivated him continually, I believe what was on his heart when he woke up and what was in his mind as he went to sleep, was the gospel. That when I wake up in the morning, the first thing that ought to strike me is, I am Christ. I belong to him. And he's given me another day and another opportunity to glorify him. And how is Christ glorified? Through obedience to the gospel, which includes my personal obedience, and it includes proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we think of all these different things that might motivate us, what might make, it make us tick, what are the, we call it the passions and the pursuits of your life. I've got a couple of little raccoons in a habitat that uh, I, I, got a, I have a passion for them, and I go and I take care of them. But is that what truly motivates me? The most pressing question that we might ask ourselves this morning is what ought to make a Christian tick? What are to be the believer's passions and, and the believer's pursuits? And then we have to go and look at everything we're doing and examine, is that consistent with what I'm supposed to be? In our text this morning, we find that the Spirit of God, working through the Word of God, by means of this particular man of God we know as Paul, reveals to us what ought to be the passion of a believer, the one who is growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ. What does that look like? Paul reveals to us his heart in these verses. Some would say that this reveals to us Paul's pastoral heart. We see the pastor Paul, that he's got these desires here to teach the gospel and, and to meet these people and to impart to them some spiritual benefit. And so I originally titled the message Paul's Pastoral Heart, but then I was thinking about this and I was a little befuddled by it because by that kind of title, Paul's Pastoral Heart, we might come to the conclusion that whatever Paul is talking about here, well, that's for Paul. But I'm here to tell you that what we have here is a glimpse into the heart of a believer to see what makes this man get up every morning. What makes this man continue to live a life that sometimes brought him great hardship. Some of us, if we, you know, stub our toe in the morning, we're like, that's done, I'm done, the day is over. For Paul, it would be, praise God, I can feel my toe move on. And so I've changed the title, and you've seen that title, and the title is, while it may sound a little more crude, What Makes the Believer Tick? What makes you tick? What motivates you day by day? And so what Paul offers up to us in Romans 8, Romans 1, 8 through 15, is his own heart. It's not an exhaustive list by any stretch of the imagination, but it does include several things that we ought to consider make any believer tick. So this is, while this isn't Paul's primary intention, we'll see what his intention are, what his intentions are. But by sharing these things about himself, we are given these insights by the Holy Spirit about what ought to be the passion of those who say they belong to Christ. And may I remind you, one of my favorite passages is 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. Anybody know what it says? Paul says, imitate me even as I imitate Christ. So I'm submitting to you that what we find here in the life of Paul are things that we ought to 
imitate, and we're going to camp out on some of these because they are rather profound. And you have the outline. We're going to see that what ought to make a person tick is that he be a person of great praise, that he be a person of prayer, that he be a person that has a plan, and that he is a person with a passion. We'll see all of these things. But before we look at these genuine attributes of a believer, let me offer you a few general observations about these verses. First, Paul is very personal in this passage. He speaks of himself throughout every one of these verses. I would have you notice that the multiple times in these verses that Paul uses the first person singular. Paul uses the first person singular pronoun I in every single verse from 8 to 15. Does that sound like a narcissistic man? Notice what he says. Look at verse 8. He says, I thank my God. In verse 9, he says, for God whom I serve. Again, in verse 9, I make mention of you. In verse 10, I may succeed. Verse 11, I long to see you. Again, in verse 11, I may impart. In verse 12, I may be encouraged. Verse 13, I do not want you to be unaware. Verse 13, I have plans. Verse 13 again, I may obtain some fruit. Verse 14, I am under obligation. Verse 15, I am eager to preach the gospel. And anybody know there's one more in the very next verse, verse 16, what's it say? For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, This does not indicate to us that Paul is somehow self-absorbed. Rather, he is informing the Romans how he feels about them, how much he loves them, and it gives us this insight into his heart. We might sometimes create a picture in our mind of the Apostle Paul as being somehow, you know, distant, somehow aloof, and yet nothing could be further from the truth. All of this reveals to us a man who loved people and he particularly loved the people of God. And this ought to be true of every single believer. It ought to be true of every pastor. It ought to be true of every elder, every deacon. It ought to be true of everyone who names the name of Christ. Another striking feature is that after this section, Paul moves into one of the core doctrines of the Christian faith and Then he'll move into practically living out that faith, and yet he returns to this very personal use of the first person singular again in Romans 15, verse 22 and following. He'll go back to this I, I, I idea, and this reveals to us that all of the lofty theology, all the great doctrines, we have what? We have the doctrine of sin. We have the doctrine of predestination. We have uh, the doctrine of concerning the future of Israel, all of these deep doctrinal truths. But when Paul gets to the end of all of that lofty teaching, it is all grounded from beginning to end with a deep desire for a personal relationship with these believers. If your idea is to know theology, to separate yourself from people, you're doing the wrong Theology is not meant to separate us, uh, at least from those of us who are like-minded in theology. It's meant to bring us together under that one true teaching. And so the lesson for us or the takeaway is that our Christian love for one another is expressed through sound theology because that's what Paul did. And then it's through genuine Christian living out the gospel. Now, don't be disappointed because there's much for us to consider in these verses before us, and I made it all the way through verse 8. Okay, So we're going to turn our attention to this very first point. The believer is to be a person of praise. This is the first of these characteristics which inform us of what made Paul tick, and I believe what ought to make every believer tick. Paul says that, well, the principle is the believer is to be a person of praise. Look at verse 8. 
Paul says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. As most of you know, the letters of Paul are arranged in the New Testament, not in order of date written. Galatians would be the very first book of Paul, if that would be so, followed by First and Second Thessalonians, followed by First and Second Corinthians, and then the book of Romans. So they're not arranged by chronology, but they are arranged rather, if you didn't know this, from longest to shortest, the book of Romans being the longest of his letters. Can you imagine getting Paul's longest letter directed to you? When we think about a, a book like Philippians and all the things that Paul could have said to the believers there in Philippi and just four very short chapters. Paul had been to Philippi. Paul had never been to Rome. And he writes his longest letter to these believers who do not know him. And he speaks of deep theology to those that he's never met. And so Paul wants them to know that although he's never met them, they are yet always on his mind. That he has a great desire there are in his prayers. They are the recipients of his constant affection. And it brings us then to this first aspect of what it means for a believer to be a person of praise. And we begin with Paul's attitude. Note verse 8 begins with the word first. And first is not here to suggest some kind of successive chronology as though Paul's going to say first, second, third, fourth. Nor does it indicate to us that what Paul writes is of primary importance. Rather, the word first is being used to capture the reader's attention. Now let me begin, is what he's saying. Say, I need you to pay attention. I kind of got the, the basics out of the way. Now we begin. And what does Paul begin with? What is the very first thing he wants to communicate about himself? Think about this. The very first thing you would communicate about yourself to other people, the very first words out of your mouth, you, what would you say? Well, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, and, uh, well, I go to Hope Community Bible Church, and um, I like raccoons or whatever. You know, what are you going to say? What, what are the first words out of Paul's mouth? He says, I thank my God. Don't bypass that. This is significant that Paul begins his introduction to these believers he's never met by saying, I am a person of praise. I praise my God. I thank my God. I'm filled with gratitude to God. This, I believe, is the very first thing that revealed to us what made Paul tick. One of the reasons he could get up out of bed every morning and go and talk to people that may eventually run him out of a city or even stone him, was that he was thankful to God for what God had done in his life and what God was doing in the lives of other believers. It's interesting, the verb thank is in the present tense. It means, he could, we could translate it this way, I thank God and I continually thank God and I never stop thanking God for you all. We'll say that in just a moment. This is something Paul did regularly. Paul was always thanking God. Thanking God for believers he had he'd not even met. Now, I think we'd all agree Paul was a pretty profound preacher. Probably sometimes intense. We don't know. I think he obviously loved people. Can you imagine if Paul says, I pray for believers that I haven't even met yet regularly. Can you imagine praying for those who are by themselves? We partake of the Lord's Supper today. It's interesting to note that the Greek word for thank, thanks, it is Eucharistos. We get our English word, the Eucharist. Eucharisto literally means good grace or good favor. It can mean good pardon, good forgiveness. And again, the, the word Eucharist, we get from that a lofty title given to what we refer to simply as the Lord's Supper. The idea is that believers are to be filled with such a deep sense of thanksgiving as they come to the celebration of what God has accomplished for them through the life.
life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, that it just overflows. What we are about to do here should not be something that's just, well, oh, now it's the time. It should be the culmination of a heart of thankfulness that you're thanking God, you ready for this, every day for your own salvation. And that you're thanking God every day for the salvation of your spouse or the salvation of your children or of friends or family. This is what is occupying Paul's mind. It was just a couple of weeks ago we broke away from the series in Romans to look at Psalm 145 and consider what we called intentional thanksgiving. Looking at how believers are to know and to intentionally express gratitude to God. For Paul, one of the most obvious of his own practices and something that ought to be true for each and every one of us is the possession and the practice of a thankful heart. I'm asking you, do you possess a thankful heart? Are you known more for complaining or for celebrating what God has done? Do you possess a thankful heart and then do you practice it? Oh yeah, I'm thankful, but it only shows up once a week it only shows up a couple times a year. What Paul is suggesting here is that he is a person of continual praise. It's interesting to note that in every one of Paul's letters except for one, the book of Galatians, which was dealing, uh, interestingly enough, with a significant gospel infidelity, so much so that he had the harshest rebukes for them, In all of his other letters, Paul starts with a reversal of this idea of gratitude to God for the believers to whom he is writing. When was the last time you began your day, began a meeting by just saying, I thank God for what he's doing in your life. I'm thanking God for what I see God doing in the lives of those that he has put into my life. Consider the several, consider that several of Paul's letters were written in what we would deem as um, less than pleasant circumstances. We have the prison epistles, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and Philemon. And he wrote them while he was imprisoned. He was literally chained sometimes to a wall or sometimes to a Roman centurion. Yet, even while in chains, Paul found reasons to do what? To be thankful. On this attribute of Paul, the 4th century Archbishop of Constantinople, John Chrysostom, noted this. He said, it is fitting that we render thanks not only when we are rich, but also when poor. Not when in health only, but when sick. Not when we thrive only, but when we have to bear the reverse. And so I'm challenging you, even as we come a couple of weeks off of the Thanksgiving holiday, one of the dangers of always giving a message about being thankful just one Sunday out of the year is what? We begin to think, well, I only have to really have this mindset on one Sunday. What's Paul telling us? If we're to imitate him, he says, I'm always thankful. And I'm thankful for What made Paul tick was the possessing of this constant gratitude to God. He understood the need to give thanks to God for believers seeking to live out their faith in the small and fragile congregations that he knew. Realizing what? What was he praising? These are God's chosen. These are those who are seeking to to live out their faith to the best degree they can. And I have something in my prayers to offer them. And Lord willing, if I ever get to see them face to face, I'm going to unload a blessing. Do you have that attitude? How about when you come to church? Let's just put it on a very small scale. Wake up in the morning on Sunday morning. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for giving me salvation by which I know I belong to you and I get to worship you. And thank you that you have brought me to a, a church that loves you and loves your word and a congregation of people that I can now have the opportunity to minister to. I thank you for their salvation. I thank you for their joy in the Lord. 
may somehow their joy be contagious to me, and whatever joy I have, may it be contagious to them, because the joy of the Lord is our strength. Note that Paul's thankfulness was not based solely upon the conduct of these churches either. Catch that? Every church except the book of uh, the, the church there in Galatia, he's thanking the Lord, and yet in every one of those letters, he's got something to say that, hey, you're messing up in these particular areas. There are shortcomings or sins that need to be addressed, and Paul addresses all sorts of sins and shortcomings and spiritual foolishness. And yet Paul's gratitude to God is not based upon the perfection of the churches. And we can do that, too, where we recognize, hey, I saw Pastor Ed, and he kind of fell short this last week. And we forget to give thanks to him. Thank you, Lord, that it's been revealed. Thank you for the forgiveness you've given him. Thank you. Paul's gratitude is not based on the perfection of churches or individuals, but upon the perfection of the head of the church. I thank God that Jesus is perfect in Eric's life. I thank God that Jesus is perfect in Sheila's life. And this is the idea that each of these congregations were to be recognized and they were striving after that kind of recognition. Beloved, thankfulness is to be the distinguishing mark of all who follow Jesus Christ. We need to be known as a thankful people. Paul was constantly giving thanks to God for the people and the circumstances in his life. And so I ask you, how about you? If you had to give yourself a, 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 on a scale of I'm always giving thanks for what God's doing in my life and the life of others to I'm never giving thanks to God, that's a bad place to be. Where are you on that scale? And if any of you know me, you know what I'm about to say. Wherever you are on that scale, do what? Excel still more. Excel still. Do you give thanks to God for the people and circumstances he has allowed into your life? I say that with some practice and with some intentional spirit, it is possible to find something for which to be thankful for in every situation you find yourself. I make this promise based on the word of God that you will never find yourself in any circumstance in which you cannot but give thanks to God. It may not always be easy, but it's possible. You say, well, how can you say that? Because I just told you. No, I didn't tell you. I said that the word of God says that that's what we're supposed to do. That we, because the word of God says so, and it actually commands us to pursue the mindset of searching for those things for which we can be thankful. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, you've heard this a few times. In everything, give thanks. For this is what? This is God's will for you. Every day you are to give thanks. Well, it's a bad day, Pastor. Okay. Give thanks. Preach it. I love that Paul says here, in everything, give thanks. He didn't say for everything. We are not required to thank God for difficult or troubling times in our lives, although we still can. What we're required to do is to thank God in the midst of our times, in the midst of our troubles, in the midst of our tranquility. The reality is that things could be often much worse than anything we experience. And I know some of you have been through some pretty rough things, and I'd imagine, how could it be any worse? Well, it could be. So believers are called to dwell on whatever is true, to dwell on whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is, is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute on anything. The problem that you and I tend to have is that our default isn't to thankfulness. Our default is to a sin nature. A nature that obligates us to focus not on the positive, but on the negative. And all we see is that which is wrong. All we notice is what we don't like. All we see is what we wish was different. And when things are not as we like, 
Then creeps in the spirit of discontentment. Then creeps in the spirit of ingratitude. We come to resent that which we do not have for all that we desire out of the circumstance. Beloved, when we are not thankful in the circumstance in which we find ourselves, and for what is it that we do have, we start complaining, we're saying, God, you messed up. Why would you allow this circumstance? Well, wait a minute. Do you believe God is good? Do you believe God is sovereign? Then you must believe that a good and sovereign God is going to do what is good and right by you, even if the circumstances seem to suggest otherwise. And so Paul says, I can give thanks. I can give thanks for my circumstances. I can give thanks for what God's doing in the lives of others. Because when we stop giving thanks to God, we submit, we suggest to God that his provisions are insufficient. And by the way, what's the first step of atheism that we find later on in Romans chapter 1? That they neither gave thanks to God nor served him. They stopped giving thanks. The sure way also have you notice that Paul's thankfulness to God for those in the church at Rome is not in any way a praise to himself. I mean, there's, there's, Paul did some amazing things, right? We could spend the rest of the day talking about all the things that, that God did through the apostle Paul, some amazing things. But Paul's not praising himself. Paul was not, pra- uh, uh, was not praising them because they had responded so well to his preaching because Paul had never preached to them. Paul had not founded the church. He had not laid the foundations for their faith. What we find here is is simply a man who was grateful what God had done in the lives of these believers, and he's about to outline all of that. This is what moves him. His, His praise and gratitude was not conditioned either on what they had done in themselves or what conditioned on his own self-esteem, trying to build himself up. Here at the outset, Paul thanked God. Paul praised God for their faith, something that he will return to at the end of this letter. In Romans 16, 19, Paul ends the letter on this very same idea. He says, for the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. And I have you notes, I think it's up there for you, that the word rejoicing, that is the root word for what it means to give thanks. So we could translate it, for the report of your obedience has reached all, therefore I am filled with gratitude over you because I've seen the work of the Spirit of God bring obedience into your life. What more would we desire as a church but to see God at work be able to wake up every morning and say, I thank God for what he's doing in the life of my brother or sister in Christ. So Paul is thankful. I think we've um, confirmed that. And while we have alluded to it, let us consider the language Paul uses to describe this gratitude and praise. Paul says, I thank who? My God. He doesn't simply say, I thank God. He says, my God. And let us not make light of that small personal pronoun as it reveals to us the very essence of all true saving faith by referring to God as my God. Paul is emphasizing that he possesses a real spiritual and personal relationship with the living God. This is my God in whom I trust. This is my God who has saved me. This is my God who has given me the gospel. And so I thank my God. God is not some abstract idea or concept. For Paul, God is not the man upstairs. Rather, God is his redeemer, his salvation. For Paul, living out his faith was an intensely personal thing. 
He did not see God as a ruling deity far removed from his people. Rather, the genuine believer and Paul saw God as his closest and dearest companion. My friend. has always been true for believers, always been true for the people of God. Consider the testimony of David, Psalm 63, verses 1 through 5. And as we look at this, notice the connection between an intensely personal relationship with God and how that becomes the catalyst for thanking God. If you don't have a personal relationship with God, you will not ever adequately, if ever, thank God. So notice what David does. He writes, O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Do you see a motivation? Do you see something that's making David tick here? What is it? What makes David tick in verse 1? That he can say of God, this is my God. Verse 2, thus I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. I see what you're doing, God. Verse 3, because your loving kindness, your mercy is better than life. Now what happens? My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. Every day, continually. I will lift up my hands in your name. Verse 5, my soul, get this, my soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness. And so, and so my mouth offers what? Praises and joyful lips. You see the connection? A personal relationship with God should lead to a life of praise and thanksgiving to God. This is Paul's heart. This is what makes him tick. But what is it? Or who is it that enables Paul to refer to God as my God? And we know, of course, it is through a person whose name is Jesus Christ. And that leads us to the second point, Paul's agent. Paul's agent through Jesus Christ. Here we find that Paul's attitude of praise and thanksgiving isn't even generated by himself. If we think we're going to manufacture this praise, everything goes wrong in our lives, right? So many things mess us up. So many things can turn us around and turn us towards a, a complaining spirit. And so the only way Paul knows to continually give thanks is because of, through, by the agency of Jesus Christ. I find this interesting when he says through Jesus Christ because the idea here is that Again, I can't do this on my own. I can't be thankful apart from not only what Christ has done for me, but get this. I can't be thankful apart from who Christ is. And what do I mean by that? I cannot be thankful as I ought to be in my sinful flesh. But Jesus Christ always never a time that Jesus complained about his circumstances. Well, what about uh, about in the Garden of Gethsemane? Well, he didn't complain. But not my will. Your will be done. It's okay to have anguish of soul and to cry out to God. It's not a complaint. But here we find that, that Paul says, the only way I will ever be a thankful person is through Jesus Christ. It has to be because he is working a spirit of gratitude in and through me. Not only did God become Paul's God through Christ, that is through the person and work of Christ and standing in his place on the cross, but Paul says, everything I do as a believer is to be with reference to God through Jesus Christ. That whatever I do will be through Jesus Christ, who is our advocate. We speak of Christ being as an advocate. What do we mean, beloved, according to Scripture? Even though we are saved, we are not fit in ourselves to approach the holy God of heaven. Not one of us in this room 
is fit in ourselves to approach the throne room of God. Rather, the scripture teaches us we need a high priest. We need a go-between. We need uh, to uh, have someone who can go before us, and we have that one person. And his name is Jesus Christ. It is through Jesus Christ that according to uh, Ephesians 2.18, it says this, we have access by one spirit to the Father. It is through the meditation or the, the mediations and the merits of Jesus that we make our approach to the Almighty and ever receive his grace. Very familiar words, are they not, from Hebrews 4, 14 and 16. Therefore, since we have what? A great high priest, our go-between, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but listen, we have a high priest, one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Now because of that, therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It's only through Jesus Christ. Oh, I think sometimes our prayers may be amiss. James says you do not have because you do not ask, and when you ask, you ask amiss. And one of the things I think we do is we try to present ourselves before the throne of God. It's got to be because of the blood of Christ, because of Christ alone, because of his gratitude, because of his mercy, God, I come before you. He is my go-between. 1 Timothy 2.5, Paul says, There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. So who else would I go? Jesus alone. We often speak of a personal relationship with Christ, and by that we mean not some selfish or self-serving arrangement with Christ, whereby we get what we want or become the recipients of some uh, eternal fire insurance. To speak of my God through Jesus Christ is to speak of what Christ has personally done for you. The reason why Paul is so thankful is when he says, my God, he starts, my God through Jesus Christ, he starts thinking about all the things that Christ has done for him. God sent his son for Paul. And so he starts thinking of the salvation from his sins, that he's been made a new creature that he's been enabled to know, love, and serve God. And none of that is possible through our own efforts. None of that is possible by joining the right church. None of that is possible by rehearsing the right catechism. No, to have a personal relationship with the living God, to be able to, be able to honestly refer to the sovereign universe, sovereign of the universe as my God, comes only Jesus as the only willing and able Savior, if you've repented of your sins and, and believe in the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and return of Christ, then you too, my friend, can refer to Jesus as my Lord and my God. Then you have come to possess eternal life, which is to know the one true and living God in Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. To know Jesus, let's make it simple, to know Jesus is to be thankful. 
when you're not thankful, you're indicating you don't know something about Jesus. Because Jesus is our gratitude. Jesus is our joy. Jesus is our supply. This alone, regardless of anything else that could happen to you on this side of glory, for better or for worse, is reason enough to always thank God, to always praise God, not only for your salvation, but as Paul is about to expound upon, for the salvation of all who have believed on Christ. Such praise to God is what made Paul tick. And we read of that very connection between giving thanks and it being given through Jesus Christ in Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do, what does that mean? Whatever you do, um, walk out to get the news. your attention with that is not just what you do it's what you say whatever you do in word or deed do it all in the name or through the Lord Jesus and when you do that include this giving thanks through Jesus to God the Father that's what we should be about can you describe yourself question to ask to sit around hey have you heard me utter praise or have you heard me complaining well and okay <laughs> you, you know to, to, to be honest that way because otherwise what's going to happen we're just going to kind of continue in a cycle of discontent well let's move on Paul's agencies through Jesus Christ Paul's audience I love this he says for y'all okay For you all, Paul is thankful to God through Jesus Christ for you all. It concerns me how many who I regard as genuine believers who yet have some kind of diminished view of themselves and their place in the body of Christ. May it never be. If you are saved, if you belong to Christ, you are significant. Not because of you, but because of Christ in you. And if Christ is in you, you have the infinitude of the glory of God dwelling in you in the spirit of Christ. So don't you dare diminish your place in the church. Don't you dare think, I have nothing to offer. Silver and gold have I none. But what I do have, I can give to you. I can give to you Jesus Christ. I can give to you Christ. What else is there to give? Notice that Paul says he gives thanks not merely in this text. He doesn't say, uh, to, uh, uh, I, first I thank my God through Jesus Christ for most of you. Can you imagine you're in that congregation going, oops, is he talking about me? He didn't say, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for the elders or for the leadership. He says, I thank God through Jesus Christ for each and every single believer there in Rome. Paul leaves not one believer out of this expression of praise to God for the salvation brought to each and every one. By way of application, this reminds us that in the church, we are to practice gratitude to God for each and every one of our brothers and sisters in Christ, without exception, regardless of any seeming deficiencies in their life, regardless of whether they have difficult dispositions that maybe rub us the wrong way, regardless of any other trivial differences we might have with them, 
Paul says, I will thank God for the salvation and the work he's doing in each and every one of you. I'm so grateful for those of you prayer warriors in this church, and I hear you, you've got your, your list out, and you're praying for every individual that God has given you. Bless them, excel in their work. We, like Paul, are to devote ourselves to praying for all of the saints. And when we pray for all of the saints, where should we begin? If we follow the example of Paul, I'm not saying it's sinful to devote yourself to someone else. Ephesians 6.18, Paul commended the believers. He said, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times. He's speaking to the churches, to the church, with all prayer and petition at all times in the spirit. Not because if you don't do it in the spirit, guess what? Meaningless. And with this in view, be on the alert and with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. You know, I might suggest to you, it's maybe easy to pray for certain saints in the congregation because you're like, I know that one. I know to pray for Pastor Ed and his preparation of a, a message, and I, I know to pray for certain other individuals. But what about the people you don't know very well? Well, I don't know how to pray for them. Well, pray for them more. Pray for the ones that you don't know all the more because isn't that what Paul's doing? He doesn't know any of these folks, and he's praying for them. salvation. Paul suggests here that we're to be praying for their faithful service to God. We ought to be praying for boldness in them speaking the gospel of God. And this is what we find Paul doing for the believers at Rome. This is what made him tick. And it brings us to our final point, that which I've entitled Paul's accolades. Paul's accolades. It's not Paul's accolades for himself. This is Paul's accolades for these believers. He says, it's because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the world. In verse 8, it closes with a very specific reason where Paul's thanks to God uh, is manifested for the Romans. Paul gives the Roman Christians this accolade and award. He says that because of their faith, that is because of their confidence in Christ, a confidence that drove them to live out the gospel before others in such a way that it was being spoken of or declared or proclaimed continually throughout the world. How can you not thank God for that? He's not commending them so much as that God's working through them. Obviously, Paul is speaking with a little bit of hyperbole here when he says that their, their faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world, not literally speaking as if to suggest that every single person on every single corner of the face of the planet had heard about the church of Rome. What Paul is seeking to convey here is that the faith of these Roman Christians was being spoken of in many places. It was known throughout the Roman world, throughout the Roman Empire. Paul made a very similar statement to the Thessalonians, if you recall, in 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 8 through 10, when he said, For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, kind of modern-day Greece, but also in every place your faith towards God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For all of these people, they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Isn't that amazing? The faith that Paul speaks of concerning these, Romans Christ, these Roman Christians, Paul says, was being proclaimed throughout the whole world. It's important that we set this statement in its historical context. Do you have any idea what had been happening in Rome just a few years prior to Paul's making this letter known to them? From around 41 A.D. to 53 A.D., the emperor Claudius had expelled, expelled the Jews from Rome. No one knows exactly why Claudius did this. It may be that the Jewish Christians who had returned from Jerusalem to start a church at Rome were making such great progress in evangelizing others, turning them away from the Roman and pagan.
pagan gods and idolatry that Claudius said, just get them out. One way Claudius could try to stop this new and disruptive movement was to simply say, I'm going to rid the city of these followers. Yet during that time, and indeed since they were allowed to come back to Rome after 53 AD, the church thrived and sought to be faithful to Christ and his commands. Now Paul comes along about 56 or 57 AD. The church is now just growing exponentially, and Paul commends them for staying true in spite of the persecution of Claudius. God was blessing what? Their faithful obedience. In fact, Paul would eventually write um, uh, uh, from prison while in Rome, and he celebrates this by saying this. Listen to what he said to the Philippians 4.22. He says, All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Paul's writing in a prison in Rome where all of the Jewish Christians had been expelled for a time. They're all coming back. And now when Paul writes this, he says, The saints, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. In other words, the faith, the confidence in the person and the work of Christ in the gospel and, uh, and of living their lives as his followers had so impacted Rome that it eventually reached the inner circle of the imperial family itself. While Claudius had sought to squash the spread of the gospel, the gospel eventually redeemed those within Caesar's household. Is it any wonder then that Paul starts his letter by saying, I thank my God then you need to start pushing beyond that. And I submit to you, you ought to be praising God specifically and routinely for his work in the lives of others. Thanking God for saving your spouse, your children, your friends. Are you specifically thankful for how he is working in the lives of the people in our church? Do you go out of your way to say, God, thank you for the ministries that are being faithfully executed? Thank you, God, for the teaching that is being faithfully given for the elders and the deacons he has appointed to serve this body. This is where Paul begins. And I believe it would do us well to give thanks always for God's blessing. And now we begin with the privilege of giving thanks to God. In one of the most demonstrable ways to remember that he was a man who demonstrated that love by demonstrating it to God's people. And so, Father, we pray that we as a church might take up this call and might imitate Paul and be those who constantly give thanks to you. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, for what you are doing in each and every one of our lives. May this characteristic be ours and ours abundantly. May we be known as individuals of praise, and may we be known as a church of praise. And Father, we begin by praising you for the great salvation that has come to us through Jesus Christ. We pray that we would be mindful of the cost, that we were redeemed not with perishable things like silver, gold, and perishable metals, but Father, with the 
God may our lives be no longer haunted. And as we sing Christ is mine forevermore, and if that be true, then we are thankful. So Father, we ask that you will bless those who would seek to continue in worship of you and your Son by your Spirit.